as Kevin mentioned in his prayer, this is the, the final week of Revelation. We spent eight weeks on it back in January, February, March, and, and covered the first five chapters. And now we've spent, this will be the sixth week on part two of it. And we've talked about how, how this is a world at war. It's, it's God versus Satan. It's good versus evil. This is a world with sin that causes pain and suffering and decay and death. This is a world at war. And then two weeks ago, we got to the point where God brings us in Revelation and says, it won't always be that way. This will not always be a world at war because I will decisively win the war. They will come when, when I will have won and the war will be over. And then last week, we talked about what follows that victory, Judgment Day. We got, we got partway through Judgment Day, and we said that um, he talks about, describes this lake of fire that will burn forever. He talks about any, anyone in the lake of fire will be tormented by that fire forever. He says Satan to be thrown into it. Satan's antichrist to be thrown in, Satan's prophet to be thrown in, everyone who, hasn't, who has not responded to Jesus' offer of life by faith in him will be thrown in. And that got us all the way through chapter 20, Revelation, and now we have chapters 21 and 22. And they are, in some ways, they might be the best books of the entire Bible. There are two big themes in, in those two chapters. One is a new heaven and a new earth which runs from chapter 21, verse 1, to chapter 22, verse 6. And then the second theme is about Jesus' imminent return, chapter 22, 7 through the very end, uh, verse 21. So it's the final 15 verses then. So we're going to look at those today, and they're filled with good news. So Revelation 21 begins this way. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth were gone. In fact, back in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, there was this little glimpse of how, of how the existing earth, existing heavens will, will be done away with. They'll be, in essence, they'll be destroyed. In chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, it said, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was this great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then Peter talks about in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about how the, the earth that we know now, the heavens we know now, will be destroyed. And God will destroy all that by fire because he's making a new heaven and a new earth. And then it says here that, that the sea was also gone. Does it seem like a strange comment? For those of you that love the waters, maybe you're a bit concerned about that. But I think it's merely symbolic. I think there are at least three things God's conveying in that. The first is this. At the time this was written, 2,000 years ago, the sea was a place of danger and fear. Most, most people looked at the sea as a place where you could find danger, as a place that they were afraid of. And so I think God's saying here with this, this new heaven and new earth, there won't be any more fear, there won't be any more danger, there won't be any more sea as, as that is represented by that. And then in those days, sea represented commerce for them. Sea actually brought them commerce, brought them food, brought them goods and by Scripture saying the sea will be no more, it's saying God will provide everything we need. We won't need the sea. We won't need commerce that comes from the sea. God will be the provider of every single need that we have. And then finally, I think it's saying, 
I think it's referring back to in the Old Testament when God uh, was having them design and actually build the temple. He had them build something called the sea, S-E-A, the sea. And it was this huge bronze basin. It was 15 feet across. It was seven and a half feet deep. And in 2 Chronicles 4, 6, it says, the priest washed themselves in the sea. So the priests that served God there, they had to be clean and pure. They would wash themselves in this huge basin. And it would wash off the physical filth, but, but symbolically it would wash away the spiritual filth as well. And they would have to wash in the basin every single day that they served there. This is saying there'll be no need for that sea in the new heaven and new earth. Why? Because we won't have any more sin. I mean, we will be perfect and pure before the God of the universe. The sea was also gone. And then he talks about this, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. And in essence, what he begins to describe, and other scriptures do some of the same, begins to describe is not that there, in the future there'll be a heaven and an earth. They will be merged together. In, in essence, heaven comes down to this new earth that God will create, and they are merged into one. They're merged into one. Does that make some sense? The heavens and earth will be merged into one. So chapter 21, verse 3 continues on. Then I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. It's describing this profound intimacy with the God of the universe. In fact, in chapter 22, verse 4, it says, And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. They will see his face. If you're familiar with Scripture, as you read through it, it says again and again, like, no one can look at at God. Every, Every single human being has sinned, therefore no one is perfect. No one can look at God and survive. But now it says when the new heavens and new earth come, when judgment day is done, new heavens and new earth come, we will be able to see him. We will be able to look in his face. Why? Because every sin will be forgiven. Every single sin will be wiped away. And there will be this intimacy with God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, this priceless verse says, When Christ is openly revealed, we will see him. And in seeing him, we will become like him. We will become pure as God himself is. So, so we'll live intimately in the presence of of the Almighty, I, I, I don't get this at the deepest level of emotion, but at least at the, at the intent that I get it theologically, but, but I think that, that this is the, the best part of heaven. This is saying that we will live intimately in the presence of the Almighty, of the one who's creator of all. We will live with him. We will see him. We will talk with him. The one who loved you with perfect love before time even began, you will live with him. The one who is perfect in goodness and righteousness. The one who's filled with grace and mercy. The one who's always just. The one that has all power, all knowledge, all wisdom. The one who is the eternal I am. We will live with him intimately. You will stand in his presence. You will look in his face. And you will feel his embrace. Friends, when we experience this, this will be the best part of heaven. I've, I've spent some time this week trying to imagine what that's like. I know some really good people. I've never known anyone who's perfect. I've never known anyone with perfect love. I've never known anyone with all power 
never known anyone with all knowledge and all wisdom and all grace. I've never known perfection other than, than what I know of God now without seeing him. This is saying we're going to be face to face, face to face with the, the eternal I am. He will be our God. We will be his people. In fact, down in verse 7, he says, they will be my children. You will be my children. You'll stand in his presence. You'll look in his eyes. You will feel his loving embrace. Verse 4 through 6, then go on. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. He says in, in this new heaven he's creating, this new heaven and earth he creates, he says, I will wipe every tear from, from their eyes, our eyes, and there'll be no more death. There'll, there'll never be another funeral service. There'll be no more sorrow, no reason to ever cry, no pain. They'll be gone forever. Isn't that what you've longed for? Hasn't it been wired into your DNA to, to yearn for that, to think that that should exist? He says, I am making everything new. Everything means you and me. I am making everything brand new. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. When Marie and I were approaching our 20th anniversary a long time ago, I realized that that was a big one. And, and she's not here, so I can say this without like blowing her head up. But I, I knew I needed to do something special because in my eyes, she's the bride of all brides. I know I'm very biased, but I, I think she's the bride of all brides. So 20 years. And so I thought a long, long time about, and I, I came up with a perfect plan to celebrate. On our wedding night, we had spent it at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Houston. And so my plan was I would sweep her away and I would take her back all over again. We'd spend a night at the Hyatt Regency. So, so I picked a time when she was relaxing in a room, and I walked in and said, honey, I've got, I've got the perfect plan for our 20th anniversary, and I, I laid it out for her, and, and what I had hoped her response would be, indeed, was the response. There were these little tears of joy just began to roll down her cheeks, and, and then the tears got to be more of a flood, and then the look on her face didn't look like a look of joy, and I thought, I don't know what's happening, but somehow this isn't going right, and, and I said, honey, what's wrong? I'm going to take you back to the Hyatt, and and through sobbing tears, she said, after 20 years, all I get is a night in a hotel after 20 years. And I turned and walked back to another room and thought, oh, my goodness, I think I have misjudged this 20th anniversary thing. So I spent some time, and I counseled with her. I didn't counsel. I uh, asked her advice, and I came up with a plan B. Plan B was take her to southern Arizona, to the mountains there. There are a bunch of birds in southern Arizona. We would fly there. And this is 1997, so you couldn't do a bunch of internet searches. So it's kind of a, a wing and a prayer. We're just going to go for it. So we, we fly into Phoenix. We get a rental car. We start driving south. And right out of Phoenix, it's desert. And more desert and more desert. And we're thinking, oh, no. We paid for a week to sit in the desert a couple weeks ago, I told I love trees, and, and uh, we're going farther in, but I looked at a map, and I saw there was a river. 
And I said to Marie, that's okay, honey, there's a river, we'll see trees, and there's going to be life. And we get to the river, and there's not a drop of water in the river, and I don't think there ever had been. It was this giant gully there, and we're thinking, this is going to be a disaster. We finally get to the turnoff off the highway, and we drive up into the mountains, and there's this oasis in the mountains. There are these huge trees in the mountains. We get to our cabin, behind the cabin, there's this mountain stream that is crashing down. This crystal clear, pure water just crashing down over boulders. And I would spend every morning, every night there with God at that place. I've always loved rivers. I've loved running water. It was this pure, crystal clear running water. It was a spectacular time there. In fact, it was so good, three or four years later, we decided to go back. It was a different time of year. We, we drive through the desert, no problem. See the dry gully, no problem. Finally drive up into the mountains. All the trees are there. We get to our cabin. I can't hear the running water. And I go back, and it's, the mountain stream is bone dry. And I realize it's not, this, it's not fed by a stream. It's, it's by rainfall and snow melt. And I thought, we got seven days, and, and I've been looking forward to my stream. And God's grace, three or four nights in, there's this massive thunderstorm, and it fills up the mountain stream again. But, but God doesn't say here, he doesn't say, I've, for all who are thirsty, I've got this mountain stream that sometimes has water, sometimes doesn't. For all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Are you thirsty to know God deeply? Are you thirsty to know true love? Are you thirsty to experience a peace that will never fade? Are you thirsty to live without pain? To never again experience loss? To never again hear a painful goodbye? Are you thirsty to live without fear? Are you thirsty to never again shed a tear? Are you thirsty to be filled with joy? Are you thirsty to be made new in the very likeness of Jesus? God says, I will freely give to you the springs of the water of life. And then as God is revealing this to John, he kind of switches gears about heaven, and so he's told about some of the qualities of heaven, and now he's going to talk about this new Jerusalem, and Jerusalem had always represented the place where you would find God and be intimate with God in some sense, and, and he talks about it in verses 9, chapter 21, verse 9, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, and he begins by talking about how it descends out of heaven from God, and he's saying to us, this is not man-made. This has no flaws in it. This is designed by God, made by God. This is perfection as it comes down. And then he ties it to salvation history because he talks about how in Jerusalem, with the wall around it, there'll be 12 gates in the wall around Jerusalem. And in these 12 gates, on each one, there'll be a different name inscribed of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's saying, in this permanent, eternal, new heaven, new earth, there'll be this record of salvation history of the Old Testament days. You can look back, you can dream and see my goodness through all those days. And then it says that there are these 12 foundation stones around, and they will have not the names of the tribes of Israel, they'll have the names of the 12 apostles, and, and saying that as you live in this place, there'll be these reminders of my stunning salvation history through all of the New Testament as well. And you'll be able to go back and see how good and powerful and loving and great that I've been through this time. And then in verses 15 to 17, he talks about how great in size this new Jerusalem is. You read our Bible, and it says, 
It's 1,400 miles in length and width and height, which is huge. If you can imagine a city of that size, it's huge. But if you go back to the original Greek and go back to how it was originally written, it talked about it was 12,000 stadia in length and width and height. And 12,000 is this, this symbolic number in Revelation for God's people. It's just talking about this whole massive enclosure. This is going to be for God's people. The entire thing is going to be for God's people. It's not about the size so much, not the specific size. It's for God's people. And then we read in our English Bible that the walls will be 216 feet thick. There's massive walls to suggest just safety and protection then. You read the, the Greek language it was originally written in. It says it was 144 cubits thick, another symbol for God's people, another numeric symbol in Revelation for God's people. It will be massive in size, but every number he uses is saying, this is made for my people. This is made for my people. But I think the most important thing to grasp from verses 15 to 17, it describes it's, it's 1,400 miles or 12,000 stadia in length and width and height. In other words, it's a cube. And people that first read this would think about about the temple, because the temple had this one distinct space. It was a cube. Nothing else did. It was the Holy of Holies. It was the one place where you could, could engage God most intimately, but no one could go there. You had to be perfect to go there. No one could go there except the high priest. He could just go one day of the year, and then God would pour grace upon grace upon him. He'd go into the Holy of Holies and have this intimate connection with the God of the universe, this is saying the entire new creation will be this intimate connection with God. There won't have to be a holy of holies. There won't have to be one chosen among us. There won't have to be one day a week. This will be just life. Every breath of life will be in this intimate connection with the God of the universe, which I can't even begin to fully grasp, but what I grasp blows me away. And then it'll be stunning in beauty, verses 18 to 21. It'll be stunning in beauty. It'll be made out of gold, and it'll have these precious stones throughout it. The 12 gates will be made, each one made of a single giant pearl, if you could imagine that. I, I don't know if, if it will literally be of this gold and of, of these precious stones. If not, it's just symbolism for, for telling us this will be a place of stunning beauty. And then finally, it will be safe and secure, chapter 21, verse 22, all the way through chapter 22, verse 8. It'll be safe and secure. It says there won't be a need for, for the sun or the moon. Why? Because it'll be the light of God the Father and light of Jesus the Son who will light up everything. There'll never be night. In other words, there'll never be a time when you feel like you can't see clearly, where you don't feel safe. There will always be this illumination from the Father and the Son. You'll always be living in light. There'll be the absolute absence of evil forever, forever, never, never again. There'll be this perpetual nourishment. It talks about this, this river that carries the water of life down the very center. It talks about the tree of life that provides food, saying there'll be this perpetual nourishment of everything you and I need for life and life eternal. And it'll say it'll be absent of the curse which began when Adam and Eve sinned, absent of the curse. 
So these, these two chapters, these final two chapters, they're, they're all about heaven and earth. The new heaven and the new earth are all about eternity for those who follow Jesus. But I find it very interesting that three times in these two chapters, there's this pause. And, and in the pause, each time God says, do not forget that, and I'm going to paraphrase. You'll have to read the words. You can find them yourself. But I'll paraphrase. In essence, he's saying, do not forget that not everyone gets here. He's saying, do not forget that it's, it's just people that have placed their faith in Jesus. Don't forget that other people don't. In fact, if I could paraphrase even further, he's saying, don't forget that, that heaven is not people's default destiny. He comes back and says again and again and again, he says, just, hey, guys, the, the default destiny, if you don't trust Jesus, default destiny is hell. Default destiny is that lake of fire. Default destiny is the stuff that you heard about that no one ever, ever wants. He says, don't forget that's the default, but, but to get this heaven that I made for you, you have to trust your life to Jesus. You have to trust your life to him. And so Revelation ends, and all of the Bible ends with these 15 verses, chapter 22, verse 7 to 21. And five times in 15 verses, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. He says again and again and again, I'm coming soon. Let me read them to you. In verse 7, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Verse 10, the time is near. Verses 12 and 13, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, I am the bright morning star. The morning star is the planet Venus. Here in the Bay Area, about half the year, we actually see it in the morning, and it's called the morning star. If, if it's that season, because half of the year it's at nighttime, if it's the morning season, if you look in the sky, the early morning sky before the sun comes up, if you find the brightest star, it isn't really even a star, it's the planet Venus, but it shines brightest. When you see, the, that, when you see Venus shining, you know that the day is about to begin. When he says, I am the bright morning star, he's saying the day has nearly arrived when all this will be fulfilled. Revelation 22, verse 20, the first part of that verse, he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Yeah, why do you think he says, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. Why do you think he says that? I think for one, I think first of all, it's for those who have not trusted Jesus. He's saying, you don't know how long you have. You don't know how long you'll live. You don't know, but what I may come back today. You don't know how long you'll have. I'm coming soon. Today is the day. You're alive today. You're breathing today. You're hearing about this good news. You understand there's really bad news if you don't take it. You're hearing today, and he's saying it could be soon. Don't, don't bypass today. If you're not trusting me, don't wait for another day. Don't wait till you feel like it. Don't wait till you get some sins out of your system. Don't wait till you're good enough. There's some in this room, he's saying, I'm, I'm coming soon. I'm telling you that because, because today's the day of salvation for you. Like, today's the day for you to, to say to me, please forgive me and lead me. And anyone that says that, and, and says that and means it, a new life has begun. A new life has begun and destiny becomes this new heaven and this new earth. But I think he also says it for those of us that know and follow Jesus. He's saying, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, because, because if we grasp how good this is going to be, 
We're going to respond like the church did then. The church then responded saying, come quickly, come quickly. In chapter 22, verse 17, it says, this is the response of the Spirit and the church. The Spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone who hears the name come, let anyone who is thirsty come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. At this point, they're saying, not come to Jesus. They're saying, those that don't know him, come to Jesus. Like the church is saying, don't miss out. It's not that we're any better than you. We're all the same, but Jesus changes us. Don't miss out. This is the church. There's this is one last appeal. It's the last appeal in Scripture to a non-Christ follower. It's the appeal of Christ today. Become, if, if you want to have the spring of living water in your life, if you want to be part of the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, if you want this intimacy with God, if you want to never again experience pain and sorrow and suffering and death and goodbyes, if you want all that, then he is the pathway, and he's real, and he's here, and he's waiting for you to pray now. But there's one more appeal to come. When Jesus says in verse 20, it says, he who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Right on the heels of that, Right on the heels of that, the church says, amen, come Lord Jesus. The church is gripped by how good it is. And when I think about some of the days I have, some of the hard days, on those days most, I just want him to come. I just want, I want to begin to step into this, uh, to step into this new heaven and new earth. Come Lord Jesus. One final word and then I'll pray for us. C.S. Lewis can capture things really well. Imagine he's saying this to you. He passed away a number of years back, but imagine he's saying this to you. All of your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find, beyond all hope that you have attained it, or else that it was within your reach and you've lost it forever. No one here in this room has to find they lost it forever. No one here in this room. Father in heaven, I pray, first I pray, Father, for those who are here today. They are hearing your word. Your spirit is speaking and stirring to them. And they have, until this point, they have not placed their life in Jesus' hands. I, I hope, I pray, Father, that they will simply whisper a heartfelt prayer to Jesus that says, please forgive me of my sins, and please lead my life. Father, for the ones that do that in sincerity, may they know a new life has begun. May they, may they know their sins are forgiven, a new life with you has begun, they will begin to change everything for them. May they know that their eternal address is no longer that lake of fire, but it's this new heaven and new earth. And all that we studied here in Revelation 21, 22, that will be theirs. When they awake someday, they will find beyond all hope they've attained it, Father. And Father, for those of us who are the church, the final words of the New Testament, in essence, of the church is saying to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Because the church got a glimpse of the perfection of the life you've planned in the new heavens and new earth for everyone who follows your son, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, amen.